I can't tell you how incredibly proud I am uh, just to sit in the front row and, and watch all this. Uh, these aren't even my, my own children, but I've got tears welling up hearing some of those stories, uh, seeing them use the gifts that God gave them. I mean, do you remember being 14 years old? Would you want any piece of a church stage on a Sunday morning when you were 14? I didn't. I was trying desperately to stay off of it. Uh, thank you, students, so, so very much. I want you to look uh, with me at, at two little verses of Scripture from First Peter, since they were looking at the life of Peter. I've been, I wasn't at Hume. Uh, I've been trying to hear all week what that was about, and the life of Peter continually comes back. I want you to read with me some words that he wrote to a people, a group of people who were following Jesus who found themselves in desperate trouble. Peter refers to them when he opens his letter to them as people who have been scattered, the dispersion, he calls them. These were both Jews and Gentiles who had given their faith and love to Christ, and it had cost them everything. We're living in a difficult time in world history where there are hundreds of thousands of refugees changing literally the face of nations. People are being bombed and burned out of their homes. They're being driven by the point of rifles and tanks out of their ancestral homes, and they are running with nothing but the clothes on their backs for survival. In the 21st century, that's a almost impossible grief to bear. In the first century, these people having been driven out of their cities, having lost touch with their families, many of them having lost their jobs, they were scattered all across the Roman Empire trying to stay one step ahead of persecution. That's who was reading this letter. And what they're trying to do now is in this most difficult of situations with no social safety net coming for them, no check is coming, no support is coming. The only people who once loved them probably are very far behind, considering them in some cases dead to them because they have simply trusted Christ. They must have been asking themselves, who are we now? No one dreams of ever being scattered, of being a refugee, of being on the run and having to survive by their wits and through the kindness of strangers. At least some of the readers who read this letter for the first time in the first century were in that situation. And they were trying then to answer for themselves, who are we? And in this new upheaval of a life where we're barely clinging to existence, what are we supposed to do? If you're troubled by the days we live in, I can't commend a book of the New Testament more to you to read than First Peter. They are people grasping for their identity, as we are. You know, there's never been a more difficult time probably in American history to be an adolescent, to be a teenager. The teenage years really, I think, beginning much earlier, beginning in middle elementary school, you start asking yourself in this cultural environment, who am I exactly? And what makes it so hard today is, these students, your children, have all kinds of voices telling them who they are or who they should be. You can count on that. And what makes it especially difficult is those, all those voices have almost constant access to them. Why? Because almost all of us own one of these. 
And some of the most creative, brilliant people in the whole world have set themselves to the task of telling the rest of us what's good enough, what's beautiful, what's smart, what's successful, what does winning look like? And it is torture to go through that with just a few voices talking to you as a young man, as a young lady, but to have so many voices from so many different places telling them one single message that boils down to this, you on your own as you are right now, you're not good enough. You need to be prettier. You need to be more athletic. You need to be smarter. This group of friends that you have, they're okay, but those kids over there, those are the cool kids. Those are the ones that you should really, if you were really cool, they would talk to you. And it's a daunting thing. So when I hear that a junior high school student stands up in a meeting in front of 500 other students, because my best friend is a professor of education, and he says this, every teenager in the classroom has a silent sign on his forehead that says, don't embarrass me. And all of us, beginning with parents, would do well to remember that simple truth. So when I hear that a junior high school student whose chief goal in any public setting, first, his bare minimum is to not be embarrassed, when that kid stands up and says, I learned that God defines me, not the culture, God defines me, wow, that's worth the price of admission right there. That's worth the financial sacrifices you made. That's worth the prayers that you offered, the attention and the encouragement you gave these kids because here is a student who's trying to escape and has escaped through the glorious truth of God's Word from all the voices that tell him in the middle of all of his wondering who he should be and who he is today, this basic eternal truth. God defines him. That's exactly what, for, what Peter told his readers in their scattering. Read with me 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm looking at verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, but you are. And anytime says you are to you, I guarantee you one thing, they have your attention. When somebody defines you and they tell you who you are, I guarantee you, anybody who's listening, even if you're not in charge of them, they desperately care about what you're going to say next because the words that come out next, at least according to them, are defining. And these days, kids hear so many negative, hurtful, lying, sometimes eternity-shaping things. I... I all of us would do well to remember just how important it is in the teenage years and even earlier before they even enter adolescence, how desperately kids are looking for their identity and how much it matters that they know that their identity is defined and created by a single person, by God. See, when I was a junior high school, between second grade, I was thinking about it between services, between second grade and seventh grade, I tried on dozens of different identities. I tried to be, just to tell you how wide the spectrum was, I tried to be in successive order a ventriloquist, a wrestler, and a cowboy. <laughs> now, when you think about those three things, you'll see that they don't really mix well together. Wrestling cowboy, maybe. Wrestling ventriloquist, cowboy ventriloquist, those. Ventriloquist doesn't really go with, 
with much of anything. Peter is talking to people who are in so much trouble that he is going to say at the end of the letter that they must feel and they should not be surprised that their life feels like a fiery trial. If you feel like you're on fire, Peter says, don't be surprised, but here's what's true of you, but you are, and look at what he says next. That junior high student who stood up in front of hundreds may not have yet ever read this verse, but this is what God showed him about his identity. You are, let's go phrase by phrase, you are first of all what? A chosen race. You've been driven from your homes and you've been told that your, your land, your heritage, doesn't matter. In fact, those of you who find yourself in desperation in a place where you don't speak the language very well and you don't understand the customs, you should understand that God calls you His own people. You are a chosen race. What's next? A royal priesthood. You could, har- you could look a long time in the Bible to f- f- struggling to find two words that carry that much weight of truth. When he says they're royal, he means that they now belong to the king, that their identity someday is to rule, that they are part of God's own family, and God is the king and the creator of the entire universe. He calls them his children. They are, as I was told when I was a kid, they are king's kids. They're not second class. They're not the outcast. They may be despised on earth, but their real identity is royal and kingly. They are sons and daughters of a king, but they are a royal, what? Priesthood. 21st century, especially if you didn't grow up in church, and especially if you didn't grow up in a church that has priests, that kind of escapes our immediate understanding what that might be about. But let's think for a second what a priest does. The function of a priest is to present God to people. He stands between God and people, and he presents God to people, and he presents people to God. So when I see a young kid sitting in the back of a van with a surfboard behind him, talking about having accepted Christ, and when I hear a young kid without a shirt on talking about being good at camp games, but then he gets to the best part, he gets to the heaven-shaping part, and he says... God is, you remember what he used, what adjective he used to describe God? God is almighty. He said it two or three times. God is almighty. And for people who don't believe in him, I will, you remember? I will tell them all about him. That's the priesthood. He stands between God and people, and he tells them in his own words, at his own age, I met God, and you should know him. He's fantastic. We're not that great. We're not that strong. He's almighty, and you have to get to know him. That's the royal priesthood. What does it say next? A holy nation. In other words, a group of people that God has created, set aside for him, a people for his own possession. It says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's almost as if Peter is so excited and so thrilled with their identity that he comes back to it again in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here's what makes the teenage years tough, and here's what makes all of life tough. You are continually told that you must change to be accepted, that you are not good enough. 
When the world speaks to you, they will say, they will not say what Peter told these Christians. They will say, but you are. And then come all kinds of hurtful, painful things that some people still in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s are still trying to outlive and still trying to change in their own strength. I'm the parent of teenagers, so I have a little bit of window into their world. And let me tell you, if your kids won't, their world is filled with pressure. At every level, every age, there is pressure to excel, to stand out in virtually everything that they attempt. That's why some kids stop trying and drop out altogether. That's their response to the pressure. Other kids drive themselves to the brink and beyond trying to do and adopt and put on the identity that the world tells them that they must have. Simple for instance, one of my boys recently took an SAT prep course, and we were introduced to a whole other world and culture of people who really, really care about SAT grades. And he came back from his first class, and he said, Dad, there's a whole group in there of kids who scored 2,100 or more. Let me, let me explain if you haven't taken the SAT in a while. A perfect SAT is 2,400. There was a whole group of kids who had already scored 2,100 or better, and they were still going to spend three months out of the summer, four to five hours a day, studying so that it could get better. If I would have scored anywhere near the equivalent of 2,100, my dad would have commissioned a statue of me in the front yard. I mean... <laughs> They would have named the street after me. My dad would have carried me out of the school on his shoulders, <laughs> making songs as he went if I were anywhere near that level of academic uh, that level of academic excellence. But here's a group of kids who are already, by definition, elite. And the message is, nice try. Let's go again. Let's work harder. Now, your kid may not view themselves as a scholar or an athlete, or, but let me tell you this. Whatever they think they're about, everyone is telling them that they must, in their own strength, be better. Peter steps into all of that, and he says to believers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Look down at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's what God did. That was the gospel your kids were given. You'll notice who the actor is here. It's God. You'll notice who the performer is here. It's God. You'll notice who's doing all the work. It's God. And to what purpose? The first half of verse 9 and all of verse 10 speaks to identity. But what is the purpose? Why did God do all of that? It tells us at the, in the second half of verse 9, you are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this is your new identity, purchased from before the foundation of the world, Peter says, at the cost of the life of Jesus. That's how much God loved you. He saw you in darkness, utterly unable to be who you should be and needed to be. But rather than tell you to try harder and to do better, the rescuer, that's why we call him the Savior, the rescuer came for you. 
And since your sin stood between you and God, Jesus lived your life perfectly in your place, and He went to the cross to pay for sins that He did not commit. Who committed them? I did. You did. Every ugly, loathsome, quiet thing that you've ever done, thought and deed, that separates you from God and your conscience tells you constantly, that's not right, you need to do better, Jesus steps into that and says, you can't do better, I will rescue you. To what end? For what purpose? That you may tell the world how great He is. That's why I love the testimony of the kid who's good at D&G. If they don't believe in him, I was leaning forward saying, what's he going to say? Typical kid his age might say, I, I, if they don't believe in him, then they're what label might you think he might throw out there? Nothing complimentary, right? God give that, God give that kid grace even if he's never read that verse. If they don't believe in him, then I will tell them all about him. That's the Christian life. A new identity for a new purpose. A new family, a new father, a new role to be a priest, to speak to God for myself, to speak to God about other people as I bring them to him and I stand in the righteousness of Christ myself and I have access to God and he listens and he cares. That's how much he loves you in Christ. What can you do? You can do no more and no better than to tell people how excellent he is. You see, everything in our culture is telling you that you should tell others how excellent you are. There's people in this church, and it breaks my heart, who mid-career are without jobs, and they're going into interviews, and that's all about tell me how good you are. Impress me, show me, show up, perform, do the work. Be the guy, stand out from this other huge crowd of people who are in your exact same situation. See, that kind of pressure really comes to the fore in the teenage years, but it never, ever really stops. They're always telling you to perform. They're always telling you to make it. Peter says, once there was no mercy for you, now you have received mercy. You were once in darkness. Now you have been called into the light. Here's the gospel. You're not good enough, but Jesus is. You can trust him. You can keep trying all of your life. You can try until you're literally dead, and you won't ever make it in your own righteousness. But here's the good news. Jesus already went all the way through life, straight through death, and to the resurrection to give you eternal life. And it's not about you ever being good enough. It's about Him being good enough. So you can give up trying to persuade other people of your own excellence. You don't have to. People trying to persuade other people of their excellence ends up in really ridiculous situations. I was recently in a parking lot with a guy in his mid-50s who spent with great details right down to naming the prizes and the awards, telling me what a great high school football player he had been low these many years ago. What's he doing? He's telling me about his excellencies. And I thought to myself, brother, to myself, because he's still pretty big, brother, no one cares. They barely cared then. They certainly don't care now. You and I are old. Our days are over. These kids out here, let's watch them. You don't have to do that. 
You're going to step right back into the world after this worship service, and the world will tell you, here's who you are, and they will lie to you about the truth of Christ. And from that lie, they'll tell you, you're not good enough. Now, by the way, convince us how good you are. Christianity explodes that. And it invites people to humbly recognize that they are not good enough and they never will be good enough, but Jesus always has been and always will be more than good enough. And from Him to receive mercy, from Him to receive a new name, from Him to receive a new identity, to step out by His grace in response to His voice, step from the darkness into the light. See, your conscience has been telling you the truth your whole life. Every time you sin, every time you blow it, and you tell yourself that wasn't right, you're right about that. The next thing you tell yourself is only half true. You, have to, you tell yourself next, I will do better. Here's the truth. You'll never do good enough. But Jesus says, all your sin, all your sorrow, all your shame, every dirty thing about you and me, he took it all to the cross to give us mercy. We stand in that new identity. And what do we do with it? We don't tell people how good we are. We tell people how excellent He is. Will you pray with me now? Hey, listen. If you're not absolutely certain of your relationship with God, if you don't have the confidence that God gave those two boys, you can make this your moment. You may have others, but this one is yours. You can turn to Jesus right now. If your conscience troubles you and afflicts you, that's good. That's the work of God telling you you're not going to make it on your own. What do you do with that? You don't commit to doing better. You run straight to Jesus and you say to him, save me. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm tired of trying. I'm sick of myself. I've had it. Jesus, forgive my sin and save me. And he will. That's why they call him Savior. He's not a helper. He's not a completer. He's a savior. He's a 100% all on his own with no help from you rescuer. He'll save you. He'll forgive you. He'll rescue you. If you're not absolutely certain of your relationship with Jesus, as I'm talking, God will listen to you too. He'll listen to you with special personal interest as you turn to him and say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Forgive me. Save me. If you do that this morning, take that connection card and let us know by filling it out that today you're trusting Christ as your Savior. And listen, if you know you're His, you're part of a new family. Young lady, you're a daughter of the King. You're not damaged goods. It's not about how pretty you ever become. You're a daughter of the King. He loves you unto life and death. He loved you so much, he would rather die than see you die. That's the exchange. Jesus dying for you, of course you have a new identity. You speak to God not only as a king, but as to your own father. You're part of the royal family. You have a whole new family, a holy nation set apart for God with this single purpose to tell the whole world how excellent he is. So if you're secure that Jesus is your Savior, take a minute and thank Him for your new identity and tell Him that you're going to reject these lying, hateful, hurtful voices that are always telling you that you have to change something about yourself to be loved and accepted. God took care of that on the cross of Christ. 
Father, as we conclude our service, people mull over spiritual decisions, persuade the one who is so close and yet resisting your voice, break down what's left of their pride and their best efforts to do better themselves. Help them surrender that to you right now and fall into your loving arms to be forgiven and to receive mercy at the cross of Jesus. For the many, Lord, here who feel damaged, hurt, insufficient, ruined already, tell them their new identity and give them energy through the Holy Spirit to walk in the light and to proclaim your excellence to everyone who will listen. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 1030 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Cross Point, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.